and something just fell. And I was just going to let you know that I'm going to start a 24-hour prayer vigil for Lowell's mouth. And you will join me if you are friends with him, and he may ask you to stand here next week. <laughs> so we want Lowell's mouth to be healed. <laughs> um, just kidding. Um, I just wanted to tell you the process uh, when Lowell and Georgia sent me a text asking me, uh, my first response silently was, um, I'm not a teacher. Um, and then I'll look back to Lowell's message, and he didn't ask me to teach. He asked me to share my heart. Um, and so yesterday I sat down with a pen, and um, actually just slowing down and writing out things was very helpful to me. I encourage you to do that. Um, and it was a powerful um, time of reflection, and I hope I can um, do justice to what God showed me yesterday. Um, I also will tell you, and I think I'm, I also will tell you that um, I'm not fond of tears. That's not my um, go-to. But God, he gets me. And what he did in my life, it gets me. So forgive if tears make you uncomfortable, but I um, assure you they've come from a place of hard-earned um, respect for, for God. So, <clears throat> have you ever been rescued? <laughs> um, I have, and I was thinking about that. Um, a time when I was, I think I was six or seven, and my family and I had gone to the state fair. And it was one of those rare occasions that my mom and dad had saved up enough money for us to actually get to go ride a few rides. I just wanted to ride the merry-go-round. I was terrified of anything that went too high. So um, she sent me off with my older sister, who at the time I think had a demon in her. I'm not sure. She was very mean all the time. And as we were walking and left them at the park, and we were walking toward the ride, she was berating me because she didn't want to ride the stupid merry-go-round that I might just have to ride what she wanted to ride. And, da, 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 da. and so I was growing fearful as we were getting closer to the part of the um, fair that had the rides. And finally we get to the line, and in my little seven-year-old mind, she had, um, was putting us in a line, and she wasn't um, telling me any different that we were in the line for the biggest, scariest ride there was. And I was shaking in my boots, and I got this grand idea that I was going to leave, and I was going to go back to the safety of my mom and dad. So I slipped away, as her attention was, and I ran for what seemed like 10 minutes back to that little grassy park, and guess what? Mom and dad were gone. I didn't know how to get back to where my sister was, and all I saw was hundreds and hundreds of big people and I had no idea what to do. And so I did what every good six or seven-year-old girl did. I stopped and just started crying. I just, wherever I was, I don't know. I just, I don't know how long I stood there. Um, but then I felt a gentle touch on my shoulder. And I looked up, and I swear he was 10 feet tall, the biggest smile on this policeman's face. And he bent down, and he said, what's your name? are you lost? And I had snot running off my nose, and I was, you know, and I wasn't ever a really cute kid, so I was a hot mess, and I really wasn't, I was like, nobody really wanted to save this little chick, and, and so I put my little, he said, well, let me, he said, we'll find your mom and dad, 
let's go. And he took my little snotty hand, and he walked me back to that little musty police station, and he sat me down on a stool, and I thought, okay, he's done his job. I'm in a little musty place. I feel safer than I was. We're good. Um, he, he did some business with the clerk. And next thing I know, he goes, Carol, you want to go ride around in that little scooter? I was like, yeah. So he put me up in the scooter, and we just rode around the fairgrounds in the scooter. I felt like, you know, everybody was, I just felt like a queen on parade. He stopped at a little um, um, game booth, and he won me a plastic little dog that I kept for years. And he brought me back just in time to see my dad standing at the police station. And I felt rescued. And it was a beautiful example. When I think of that policeman, I think of everything good. <laughs> and, and since then, in 50 years, I have felt that same... Oh, i got to get my glasses. <laughs> and I can also tell you that in 50-plus years, I can re- still remember the, the day that policeman rescued me. He will always be a reminder to me of what good is. I can also tell you that in those same 50-plus years of living, I have undeniably been rescued by a big, beautiful God. And I am forever changed by his overwhelming goodness. So my question is, why have I lived so many hours, days, years in a place of fear or anger or frustration with a God that I know is good. I heard a podcast not very long ago, and I, and I know it's kind of odd to listen to a podcast in church, but I want you just to, um, it kind of helped me and kind of sets the stage, so if y'all just listen to this. Decision making at all, but, well, it does. Listen in. Author, teacher, and philosopher Dallas Willard said six words that have changed the way I make decisions. You may already know what those six words are, but first, a bit of context. I consider it a gift that I grew up hearing about the goodness of God. My mom taught us when we were very small that God loves us and he's good. Over the course of my life, I confess I've doubted certain things about God and his character, mainly about his provision, his timing, and sometimes his trustworthiness, but I would never say I doubted his goodness. You might think I'm contradicting myself, and I probably am, but I'm just telling you how it's looked from where I sit. Your story is, I'm sure, quite different from mine. Or maybe you can also relate with knowing or thinking and believing that God is good, but also doubting him in other ways. No matter where you are in your own faith journey, those six words, the ones I referred to before from Dallas Willard, have the potential to challenge even the most faithful among us. So what are those six words? Never believe anything bad about God. As I said before, I've always believed God is good, but I've also believed bad things about him. Essentially, Dallas was saying God is not only good, he's also not bad. I can't explain why that turn of phrase changed things for me. I can only tell you that it did. When we consider the kinds of decisions we're faced with every day, Some are decisions of privilege and preference, like what's the best way to celebrate our anniversary? Or should we get another dog? 
These are important decisions and can actually cause quite a bit of daily pressure if they linger unmade for too long. Just because something is fun and enjoyable doesn't mean the decisions surrounding it are always fun and enjoyable. Don't discount the weight of happy things. Of course, you may also have more complex decisions, though, like which of these five highly qualified people should I hire? Or how do I parent my teenage son or daughter? Is it time to retire? Should we look for a new church? Do we say yes to foster care? What's the best home for my aging parent? The questions we're carrying are endless, and there will not be a time in our lives where we have no more need for discernment. But one of the most foundational influences on our decision-making that lingers beneath the surface is what we believe about God. Because as I've shared with you from my own life, what we say we believe and what we actually believe don't always match up. Something else Dallas Willard said a lot was that we always live what we believe. We just don't always live what we profess we believe. I professed I believed God is good, yet I often made and still sometimes make decisions believing bad things about him. What kinds of bad things? Well, there have been times in my life where I've pictured God as an angry teacher, disappointed that I can't get it right. I've pictured him as a distant relative, family, yes, but not directly invested. So how does the way we picture God influence our decision-making? I talk about this in chapter four of my book, The Next Right Thing, and I'll repeat it here. If I believe God is distant, I'll feel alone and untethered in my decision-making. If I believe God is a scolding parent, I may delegate decisions to someone else so I can avoid the consequence. If I believe God is wimpy, maybe I can manipulate him into doing whatever I want. If I believe God is indifferent, then he probably doesn't care what happens one way or another. If I believe God is like a carnival barker presenting three cups, I'll feel cheated or duped when he forces me to guess which one is hiding my right answer. Is God like a puppeteer, a kind old grandfather, an abusive parent, an insecure friend, a greedy king, a manipulative mother, or a golden retriever? Has he chosen a number between one and ten and is just waiting to see how close we'll get? Is he standing in the corner of the room with his arms crossed and his eyebrows raised? Does he roll his eyes, turn his back, or slam the door when I make a bad decision? How we answer these questions will determine how we live our lives. And how we live our lives is really a series of decisions. So yes, how we see God is relevant to the decisions we make about schooling, parenting, money, vocation, marriage, and friendship, and everything else. We're always telling ourselves a story. The question is, is the story true? As you consider your next right thing, what if you started with the decision to never believe anything bad about God? He will not shame you, belittle or abuse you. He will not trick or tease you. He will not laugh at or make fun of you. He will not talk about you behind your back, stab you in the back, or tell you to be more like your sister. He will not cheat on or betray you. His eyes are not narrowed at you. His ears are not closed to you. His nose is not turned up at you. His hands are not harsh with you. And you do not leave a bad taste in his mouth. From a Psalm of David, chapter 23, in the Message Translation, God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. You have bedded me down in lush meadows. You find me quiet pools to drink from. True to your word, you let me catch my breath and send me in the right direction. Even when the way goes through Death Valley, 
I am not afraid when you walk at my side. Your trusty shepherd's crook makes me feel secure. You serve me a six-course dinner right in front of my enemies. You revive my drooping head. My cup brims with blessing. Your beauty and love chase after me every day of my life. Never believe anything bad about God. I'm going to take a few minutes and tell you a few things that I have believed about God, things that God has been fighting to get out of my head for a while. Okay. Number one, God remains unconcerned, untouched by the things that scare me. When I was a little girl, um, well, let me just preface it. I grew up in a home where God was loved and honored, not just at church, but especially my mom. He was an intricate part, is an intricate part of her life. So I am in no way um, belittling where I came from. But um, I also grew up in a home where um, my parents adopted an older brother before I was born. He was always there. And um, I mean, hindsight, looking back, I think he just never could accept the fact that he belonged. And he was angry and hurt that his mother rejected him and um, myriad of things. But needless to say, there was lots of turmoil from the time he was a little boy um, until he was older. And by the time he hit pre-adolescence, it really hit our family. And I was at a young age, and I went to night. Night after night, I would go to bed with um, fights and anger, and pretty soon it became... um, he, you know, he brought drugs, and, and then he would make <clears throat> um, violent moves to my mom, and then my dad, there'd be fist fights, and the police would be called, and my house um, became like the, the place in the block that nobody let their kids go to. And night after night, because I knew that God was good, because I'd been told that, I would pray and I asked God. Can you not make it scary? Do I have to be scared tonight? And then the next week or the next night, the same thing would happen. And so I just decided all by myself that I just needed to be tough, that this was one thing in life. God obviously had other things to do, and I just needed to take care of this one. And so I did. And then I became in a little shell, and I remember, I don't know, several years into it, I finally got the courage late at night to go talk to my parents about it, I guess at one of those rare openings, and I went into their room, and I told them all my fears, and I asked them, could we please not have that happen anymore, however I said it, and my mom immediately started being the practical lady she is, well, Carol, we can't control what other people do, da-da-da-da-da, My dad stopped her, and he said, it will never happen again. And my mom immediately told dad that, you know, Jimmy, you can't say that. You don't know, and so that's what I heard. I walked away, steer fearful. It wasn't until I was doing this that I realized it never happened again. That my dad's heart saw his little girl 
And he said, I'm not doing it again. There was still pain, and there were still lots of things ahead. But the violence and the police being at our house, today I could tell you it never happened. And that was my earthly father showing me what my heavenly father wanted me to know. I didn't quite get that lesson. Few, I was an adult. I was living here. I mean, I was, we had gotten a series of bad news. You know, those, you, got, you know those times where you just, they just keep rolling in. And I was under the impression of this lie that God remained unconcerned or untouched by my fears. So I wasn't going to him. And I remember I just kind of become numb. I don't know if y'all do that. I just become numb and I kind of withdrew. And <clears throat> that's just how I dealt. And I was back in my workout room with my TV, closed the door, and I was just watching a TV show. Just Mark and the girls were up front, and I was watching the TV show House. <laughs> I don't know if y'all know House, um, <clears throat> but I was watching that show and half watching it, not paying attention, and I just paused it, and I just stopped, and I just poured out my heart to God. And I said, God, you know, you know this, and I'm scared, and I, I keep coming, and I'm getting nothing, and I feel like you've left me. Am I alone? I feel so alone. I don't know what to do. And so I stopped praying, and I waited, waiting for God to do some lightning, do something. Nothing. You know, crickets, as they said. So I exasperatingly just turned on back, back to my show, and I am not exaggerating in the least. <laughs> When this is what was on the TV. Air filtered water. You even have silk sheets. No television, no books. Not even my Bible. I'm afraid not. This room has filtered air, filtered water. You even have silk sheets. Very decadent and hypoallergenic. You should be feeling better here. We'll be back to check on you in a little while. Can the other sisters come in and pray with me? It'd be better if you don't have any visitors. Once we isolate what's causing your allergy, then we can be a little more lax. <laughs> I, I can pray with you. I don't want to die. Why has he left me? I was in seminary school. They asked us once what our favorite passage was. I chose 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. These trials only test your faith to see whether or not it is strong and pure. Your faith is being tested. This fire tests gold and purifies it. And your faith is far more precious to the Lord than mere gold. So if your faith remains strong after being tested, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day of his return. He hasn't left you. <laughs> the only thing in the way of you knowing he's there is your fear. You have a choice, faith or fear. That's the test. But choosing faith doesn't mean I won't die. But it will affect how you experience your death. 
and therefore your life. It's up to you. Why did you leave seminary school? That test. You passed. I didn't. We'll call you if anything changes. You could stop it right there, Trent. Now, I don't know if you know what a miracle it was, because <laughs> I watched every season of House, <laughs> and every reference to God except this one has not been positive. Um, I turned off that show. <laughs> I ran and got Mark, and I went and got the girls, and I made them watch it. I just told them. I was like, I was just asking God, and if he can talk through a TV show that I was trying to ignore him with, so that was when I started to realize that that lie, that was a, that God does. He is concerned and touched by the things that scare us. How many times in scripture does he say, fear not, don't be scared. I'm with you. <clears throat> Number two, <laughs> um, God is easily offended and irritated. So if I get it wrong, I'm wasting everyone's time. I worked very hard all of my young adult life when I decided to start this faith walk. I developed strong disciplines. I sought out people to turn them to God. I was passionate about my focus on God. I wanted to see him in everything and in everyone. But the truth was, I was miserable. But God came after me. Right in the middle of my work, I experienced profound failure. I was so disappointed with who I was. I backed completely away from God. Or I tried. The first thing that he did was he brought me to RVC. I'm forever grateful that the only work he had me do here for the first two years was to hear the words, I love you, Carol. It took two years for me to accept that. <clears throat> the other thing he did during that time was I was taking classes and I would get out late. <clears throat> and so when I would do my runs, <clears throat> it was dark and I would be on the base so I I would go on these long runs in the pitch dark. And I cried and I screamed. And I told God a hundred times everything I had done wrong. And do that God, God can run. <laughs> he stepped step for step with me. And he kept saying, I know, I love you, Carol. I know. But God, this is why you shouldn't. I've wasted your time. This, did you know I did this and I did this and I did this? I know, I love you, Carol. So that grandfatherly figure that was unconcerned or irritated because I was wasting his time, that image just dis dissipated <laughs> is a good word. First of all, God's in good shape. <laughs> he, could, he could keep, but he also reminded he took time. And so that lie has been unmasked. And then the third one, not quite, so I can probably do this without touching the tender spots. 
He treats all of us, this is a lie, he treats all of us exactly the same. Now, you might think, well, that's fair, right? That's God. That sounds just like God. <clears throat> but for me, for some reason, however I'm wired, <clears throat> that insults me. <laughs> um, my mom, she had four kids, and I think she grew up in a home where she felt like they were favorites or something, so she came from a good place. I'm not throwing rocks, but she would make sure that every child got exactly the same amount spent on them at Christmas. They got the same amount spent on them on the birthday. If she got one for one, she got something for the other. And for some reason, that just hurt me. I just felt like a number, you know. I mean, I knew my mom and dad loved me, but I, that was just a hard thing. And so when I grew up in a, with church and I just thought, well, yeah, God loves, God loves you. Yeah, okay, God loves, God loves number one, he loves number two, he loves number 100 million, he loves, he loves us. Okay, good. Um, and then I was watching, the sh reading The Shack, and he had a cool way of saying it. Instead of God loves you, he was, he's especially fond of you. And that touched me because it went from God loves humanity, which he, God loves humanity, and I'm grateful, <laughs> but he also loves you. And he loves me. And he knew my name. He knew the thing. He knows. He likes this lisp that I have that I hate. He thinks it's, he likes that. He likes that inside I feel like a big intimidating warrior. And this is what he put me in. In fact, a funny, I'm just going to side note and tell you a funny story. I was at a one of those community, come together community services. And it was all races and all um, <clears throat> different walks of life, and uh, so I didn't know anybody there. Me and the girls were there, and um, <clears throat> they had this drummer that was there, and he was the coolest-looking black dude I had ever seen. I mean, he was bowed up. He had braids down the middle of his back. He could drum like nobody's business, and I was just, I thought, that's what I am inside. You know, if you unzip me, and so during one of the things we were walking around, and he had moved from behind the drums to the back of the church, and we were having to do some walk. I don't know what we were doing. But anyway, we were walking by, and I leaned down, and my girls were mortified. But I leaned down to him, and I said, inside me is you. <laughs> and he thought it was funny. The girls did not think it was funny. They were like, oh, my gosh, Bob, what are you doing? I said, well, that's what I feel like inside. And I think God gets a kick out of that. I think he, he does, and, and these are just quirky things about me, but there's quirky things about you that God loves. He knows them, he makes them, he gets a chuckle out of them. He loved it the first time he put me in a Pentecostal church. He loved it. He thought that was great. Me and Mark were like, and I said, God is getting such a kick out of this because you, you look like a fish out of water. But all those things that make up you, God made them and he loves them. And so I, so he doesn't treat us all exactly the same. He treats you like you, and he teaches you like he teaches you. And that lie freed me, <laughs> unmasking that lie. He has different answers for different people. In the scriptures, he said, um, he told when he would heal some, he would say, follow me. Others, he said, go back and tell, tell your family. Others, he said, don't say a word. You know, he, he doesn't, that's just an example that he, that for each one of us, he treats each one of us differently. I'm going to read, I know she 
just in case you missed it. This is just how personal. I'm going to reread Psalms 23 in the message. And this time when you hear it, just think about God just speaking this to you. God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. You have bedded me down in lush meadows. You find me quiet pools to drink from. True to your word, you let me catch my breath. And you send me in the right direction. Even when the way goes through Death Valley, I am not afraid. When you walk at my side, your trusty shepherd's crook makes me feel secure. You serve me a six-course dinner right in front of my enemies. You received my drooping head. My cup brims with blessing. Your beauty and love chases after me. Wow, that gets me. Every day of my life, I'm back home in the house of God for the rest of my life. Next page. <laughs> God is love. God is good. And sometimes we all know the love chapter, right? And I'm going to read some of that. And sometimes I used to use that as a gauge on how I was doing <laughs> and how I could love people better, whether it's my husband or my children or my friends or my enemies. But this is a description of God because God is love. And so for all the lies you believe, you make sure it lines up with this and you can get rid of them. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable. And does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy and unrighteousness. But rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. And as for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Oh. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. God is good. But he is also never bad. He rescues me. He rescues you. He understands my fear. And he showed up with protection and peace. He understands your fear. And he shows up with protection and peace. He has continually delighted me with intentional gifts of his presence in my ordinary days. He will continually delight you and show up in your ordinary days. He has come after me with strong, protective, almost invasive force when I have run away. He's kept up step for step. He will come after you with a strong, protective, almost invasive force. 
when you step away. He knows my name, and he knows what makes me laugh and what keeps me up at night. He likes all those quirky things. He knows your name. He knows what keeps you up at night. He doesn't treat us all the same. We all get different gifts. Before I end with an important scripture, I'm just challenging you to see if you can identify places in your life where you've believed bad things about God. I'm going to end with in Matthew's from the message again. I just like how it says things. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Can we pray? Father, 